when life is clear and we're connected to each other, when there's a sense of the whole, when I know I'm part of a bigger body, when it doesn't all fall to me, but rather I know my place in the spirit, how can we not rejoice in the connection with each other? That was Sister Simone Campbell, Executive Director of Network and famous for Nuns on the Bus. She's here to talk today with our assistant editor, Regina Munch, about her new book, Hunger for Hope, in which she talks about how her contemplative practices have fueled her political work. I'm Dominic Preziosi, and this is the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Regina. How are you? Hi, Dominic. Good. How are you? I'm doing well, thanks. And you got to talk with Sister Simone Campbell. I did. I talked to Sister Simone about Network, the Catholic social justice lobby that she's led for 15 years, and particularly its role in the passage of the Affordable Care Act. And Sister Simone has a new book out in which she talks about the people who have, as she says, broken open her heart over the years and how her faith and her encounters with the many people that she met on the Nuns on the Bus tours have moved her to action in the political sphere. Most people know of nuns on the bus for when they opposed Paul Ryan's budget in 2012, but less known is the fact that those tours have continued every year, and under the Trump administration, they focused on immigration reform in particular. And we also talked about now she's looking ahead to the Biden administration and the new opportunities that it might bring. That sounds great, Regina. Let's take a listen. For the past 16 years, you've been the executive director of Network, a nonprofit Catholic social justice lobby. Could you tell me about the work of the organization, particularly nuns on the bus? I'm happy to do that. <laughs> Our organization was founded in 1971. The idea was hatched, and we opened our doors in 1972. Needless to say, I wasn't working at Network then. And we've been working on Capitol Hill ever since. We were founded by Catholic Sisters to be a advocacy group on Capitol Hill. The sisters that came together in December of 71 said, we've been doing charity all this time, and we haven't been able to do anything to address the systemic problems that we're facing. So let's create a network of our sisters around the country to advocate. We don't need a new organization. So that's how we got the name. We're a network of sisters around the country. And then over the almost 50 years since then, we've been lobbying on Capitol Hill on issues principally of economic justice and through using two lenses. One is the impact on women and the other is racism, structural racism. So over this time, we've done all kinds of work. And in 2010, my great honor was to have written what's called the Nuns Letter. And I circulated in 2010 this sign-on letter about why it was important to pass the Affordable Care Act. And this is when it was in the House of Representatives already having passed the Senate. And to my great joy, 59 leaders of Catholic Sisters Community signed on. And not only did they sign on, they signed on even after the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops had come out opposing the bill. But we knew what was in the bill. So we knew there was no federal funding of abortion like they claimed. So we went ahead with our letter. 
and it's credited with uh, securing the passage of the Affordable Care Act. I thought after that moment, if I never did another good thing in my life, that was enough. And then in 2012, we had our 40th anniversary party. And the big question was, how do we get our name out there? How do we let people know we've been lobbying on Capitol Hill for 40 years? And we had all these little ideas, you know, like a Google ad or a, you know, ask a member to get a member or something like that. Four days later, literally four days later, the Vatican answered our prayer when it named Network, our organization. Some of your listeners may remember the troubles uh, when the Vatican went after Catholic sisters in the United States. Well, they named us as being a bad influence. And I knew it was all about politics. They were just mad that we had won on health care. That was what it was about. But what happened was my prayer was coming from our 40th anniversary was how do we use this moment for mission? And what came to me was the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, where Jesus talks to the foreign, talks to the stranger in a strange land, and not only talks to her, but asks for help. So we asked our secular colleagues for help, and the result was we went on the road. They told us, you've been pushing back against the Ryan budget. You should go on the road. You should go in a wrap bus. You should push back against the Ryan budget and lift up the works of Catholic sisters. That's what you should do. <laughs> so we said, okay, <laughs> as long as we get the money for it. And the amazing thing was, Rudina, that the we got the money pledged in 10 days. It was like Pentecost. It was the lightning. It was the Holy Spirit alive and well and making mischief. So we had the idea on May 14th, and we were on the road June 16th. Wow. It was fantastic. And now we've done seven tours, including our most recent one, which was all virtual, but it lives in people's imaginations. And I think each tour has a different theme. Yeah, the first one was Paul Ryan's budget, mm -hmm. uh, which never did pass, praise God. 2018 was, oh my gosh, that was the best that was the all on tax policy, and it was nuns on the bus on the road to Mar-a-Lago. And we, we started in Santa Monica, California, went all the way across the country, up into upstate New York, and then all the way down the East Coast, lobbying in congressional offices where the member had voted for the tax bill and against health care. And our lobbying, we get you know, local constituents together, we'd go into lobby and we'd say, I'd say, why did you vote to hurt your constituents? Why did you vote to take away the money our nation needs and to take health care away from our people? Why did you do that? And then we'd wait for an answer. And then after we tried to get an answer out of them, we'd go outside and have a press conference and tell the press what we had heard. It was great. I loved it. And we helped flip 10 districts. So... It was great. In your book, your new book, you characterize the role of women religious as prophets because of their identification with the marginalized. Could you say more about that? You know, within our Catholic Church, there's a lot of concern about women's leadership and women being, you know, in clerical settings and ordination, all this. But one of the things that I've realized about women religious is that we have a freedom, a gift of freedom by not being 
clerical, not being under the control of specific geographic bishops. Rather, our work, at least in my religious community, I think most religious communities, is to respond to the needs of our time. And because of that, then we're called to this edge to speak of things that people would rather not hear, to lift up the struggles of people that the general public would rather ignore, and to address the really societal struggles of our time and to make change. We have a freedom as Catholic sisters that is such a gift. For one thing, we live in community. We hold all things in common, so we'll support each other. So if I got fired, somebody would support me. That gives us a great deal of freedom as we move forward. It also is a tremendous responsibility to speak of the gospel now. Where would Jesus be? Just like Pope Francis in the new encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, speaks of the uh, Good Samaritan. I mean, that's what we should be speaking about is the needs of those who too often get left out of our care. I was very moved in reading your book by the idea that it's necessary to let our hearts be broken by the people we encounter. And you encountered a lot of people on uh, the Nuns on the Bus tours. I'd like to read a quote, if you don't mind. You write, quote, By hearing the stories of those in pain around us, our hearts are broken open. When our hearts are open, we then have room for everyone. No one can be left out of our care, end quote. What happens when our hearts are broken? And how do we move from brokenness to hope? Walter Brueggemann points out that there's five characteristics of a community that nurtures prophetic imagination. But the one that I think is really maybe the most important in the U.S. context is touch the pain of the world is real, which I call letting our hearts be broken open. And let me give you, let me give you an example of when this happened to me. I was on the first bus trip, and we were in Cincinnati going to hold this uh, outdoor rally because so many people had shown up. We didn't fit in the room and it was a hot, steamy night in late June and we didn't have any chairs, everybody standing around. And this family comes, uh, Jeannie and her partner, Lynn, and their nephew came directly from Jeannie's sister's memorial service. Margaret, Jeannie's sister, had died because in the recession, she lost her health care. When she lost her health care, she lost her capacity to get screened for colon cancer. The Affordable Care Act had not been implemented, so she didn't have access to Medicaid. And she ended up getting colon cancer that her family had a propensity for. And by the time she was literally carried into the emergency room, she was terminally ill. And then she died a bit before uh, we arrived in Cincinnati on the bus. Jeannie and her partner, Lynn, come directly from the memorial service and bring me a picture of Margaret that I've carried to this day. What happened for me was hearing their sadness at the loss of Jeannie's loss of her sister, that this senseless death. I, I just I just held them and we wept together and it broke my heart. But what happened because my heart was broken, open, is that there's room for so many people that struggle. And then I started talking about Margaret and Margaret's death. And then I heard in St. Louis about a woman whose brother had died because he had gotten a cancer. He was a long-haul trucker. 
who didn't have health insurance and he died because he didn't have the care that he needed. And then I heard up in where we upstate New York about another family situation like that. And I heard someplace else about this young man who was so depressed and he ended up committing suicide, but he didn't have access to mental health care. So because I spoke of my broken heart, I kept hearing of other people's broken hearts. And it was never like it was a burden for me. It was more like, oh, come in, let me wrap you around with my care, that there's always room for more. If we're in touch with the pain of the world is real, then we're connected with everybody. And that is an element of hope. That is an element that brings us connection because it is community. Your religious order, the Sisters of Social Service, has a special devotion to the Holy Spirit. What does your contemplative practice and devotion to the Holy Spirit look like? And what's the relationship between contemplation and action? Holy moly. <laughs> That's like, uh, oh, let me tell you. Okay, so it is unusual. There are not too many communities dedicated to the Holy Spirit. Our founders in Hungary in the 1920s knew that uh, we were founded to do social work, to, as she said, go on unbroken roads, and that we're to be pine tree, individual pine trees rooted in the craggy rocks. It's all these images, but that our roots need to be deep into the Holy Spirit. Because it's the nudge of the Spirit, it's the inspiration of the Spirit that can see us through, keep us faithful. And my experience, well, the, the way I talked about the beginning of Nuns on the Bus, that was totally Pentecost. That was a Holy Spirit event that in an hour and a half meeting, all these folks agreed that we should go on the road. So, of course, we go on the road. We had no idea what we were doing. but. It was spirit-driven, literally. <laughs> and that trust in the intuition, the spirit, I call it the we small voice within. And so then my contemplative practice becomes sort of in a Zen, Christian Zen tradition of quiet, of stillness, so that I sit every morning, I sit physically still for a half hour to just listen deeply. And sometimes, occasionally, there'll be a little whisper, a little nudge, a little something. But if I didn't do that stillness and know that it's not about me, it's about responding to the needs around and how to say this, uh, being open to what needs to happen, then that is the movement of the Spirit. Let me give you an example. Okay, so in the spring, I was doing my meditation, sitting quiet, still, and this little voice is, wee small voice, little whisper of, we got to do something about this president. This is terrible. And so I sat with that for a while, and then it came again, we have to do something. And what I realized was that it, for me, it was a nudge of the spirit to 
speak up because we don't at network our organization we do policy we don't do electoral stuff so i took it to our board and for the first time 48 years we took a position opposing a candidate but it was because he violated every single tenet of catholic social teaching it was so and he was hurting our people so badly and had no sense of the impact of his very destructive policies and behavior. And for me, it was because it was grounded in the spirit. It was grounded in the nudge, the wee small voice, the quiet nudge, and then in discernment by our board, where there was careful consideration, reflection, prayer, and then a decision to do it. And then our staff engaged in a similar reflection piece. Well, how do we do it? And it was like lightning. That was fabulous. You also wrote, grimness is not an expression of 21st century holiness. Could you say more about that? I think that's a wonderful line. Oh my gosh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like the, the thing is, Pope Francis said it first. He, you know, he's got these, in his exhortation on holiness, he's got these five characteristics of holiness for the 21st century. And the first is perseverance. Okay, you can, you know, suck it up and persevere. But the second is joy and a sense of humor. The third is passion and boldness. The fourth is doing it in community. And then the fifth one is living in constant prayer. Well, joy and a sense of humor, when life is clear and we're connected to each other, when there's a sense of the whole, when I know I'm part of a bigger body, when it doesn't all fall to me, but rather I know my place in the spirit, how can we not rejoice in the connection with each other? I mean, that's, and, and what I've learned is when I get really grim and sometimes at work, at network will get all worried about Senator McConnell and the terrible, nefarious things. I mean, that can get us really wound tight. But that's because we think it's up to us. And then what we have to do is, okay, take a deep breath. What can we do? How can we act? What's our part? And once we've done our part, then we have to let the rest of the body do their part. And I'm not in control. And so for me, joy and a sense of humor is sort of the measure of how faithful am I? Somebody, I don't know who, I've forgotten who, said that the measure of how well we Sabbath, do we take a day off, do we let it go, is a measure of our faith. <laughs> do we think I'm in charge? Or do we think that there's a bigger connection? Announcing Loyola University Chicago's new School of Environmental Sustainability. Solve today's climate challenges at one of the only schools in the nation dedicated to environmental sustainability. Ranked as one of the most eco-friendly universities in the country, Loyola is called to empower the next generation of environmental leaders. Join the virtual grand opening event on December 14th. Learn more and register at luc.edu slash commonweal. Joe Biden is a Catholic, and he has seen a lot of pain in his life, but he still very much has a sense of humor and clearly a sense of compassion and care for other people. What do you think of his outlook 
both his faith life and his policy choices? Well, I know that President-elect Biden is a man of strong faith, and he'll tell everybody that nuns and Jesuits have kept him Catholic. (laughs) Uh, And what he appreciates about nuns is that we're grounded, engaged, and working with the people. We're not separate. The other piece that a lot of people don't know is that he does read theology. He's read all of Pope Francis, and he loves talking about it. The thing that I think that's most important is that he does know suffering. And the death of his son, Bo, in um, 2015, really was such a painful, painful experience for he and and Jill. But the president-elect's approach to dealing with that was to take it to prayer, to take it to mass, to seek consolation in his faith. That, I think, deepened his awareness of the suffering of others and gives him a great deal of compassion, including with our current president, for what are personal inabilities or limitations or suffering, avoided suffering. And that's what I think is going on with the, the our current president, is that he just, he can't deal with reality. And so my temptations just get really frustrated. But I think President-elect Biden is more aware of this as a character flaw than as a strategic political move, because you see in the flailing of our current president that he's, he's fallen apart. Do you see a religious left operating in politics in the United States? And how might a religious left work with a Biden administration? <laughs> Oh, this is really amusing, because every time there's an election, it's like, well, is there a religious left? (laughs) Well, of course there's a religious left. We've been there all the time. It's just that because we work together and because we work in coalition with secular partners, we're not always seen because we're trying to get work done. The religious right, on the other hand, is usually seen in terms of a single issue that is too narrowly defined, that has been hijacked by a single party and manipulated for that purpose. So they are perpetuating this idea that, oh, Catholics are single-issue voters. Well, we just did a whole virtual nuns on the bus for a month about how Catholics are multi-issue voters. And if you follow Pope Francis's in his exhortation on holiness, he also has paragraphs 101 and 102, if people want to look it up, he says, yes, it's important to care for the unborn. Care for the unborn, notice. Equally sacred, however, he says, is the care for those, and I'll quote this, is care for the lives of the poor, those already born, the destitute, the abandoned, and the underprivileged, the vulnerable, infirm, and the elderly exposed to covert euthanasia, the victims of human trafficking, new forms of slavery, and every form of rejection. 
And then it goes on to talk about equally sacred is protection of those who are suffering because of economic disparity, the immigrants, the migrants, the asylum seekers, equally sacred. And so what happens in the left is we work on a broad range of issues and those really fairly few people who control on the right are single issue, I believe, for political gain. For us, we'll care for the unborn by working on making sure that moms have access to prenatal care, that moms have access to food and nutrition, that moms have access to stable housing and a job and affordable childcare. We care for the unborn, which is very different than the far right who worries about the criminalization of abortion and really doesn't care about health care for moms, doesn't care about food for moms, doesn't care about housing for moms. They think their only thing is criminalize abortion and we've got it settled. No, we don't. Criminalizing abortion is the manipulation of a party to control the vote. And I'm very pleased to say that we helped shift some of the Catholic vote in this election because of Pope Francis's very clear teaching, equally sacred is the care for the born. And we have a lot of work to do on that score. When you and other parts of the religious left work, as you said, with with secular partners, how do you communicate your religious convictions with them? And how do you turn those into action that both groups can move forward with? Well, they know we're we're a faith-based organization, and they love having us with them because we bring values and a consistent concern for life. And we also minister to them, too. Let me tell you a story. We, we moved to a new office in December of 18. And in uh, late January, early February of 19, we had a, a blessing. And so we invited all our secular colleagues, all our faith colleagues to come and bless. And we had this whole little ritual in our in our library where everybody gathered together. And then I asked that as everyone left, if they would just put their hand in a bit of the the water we had blessed, put their hand in the water and bless the door, that uh, going out and coming in, that our going out and coming in may be for the common good, for the benefit of all. And while one of our colleagues is kind of a gruff guy and you know, he he doesn't believe in any of this stuff. And he's not a faith person, but he thinks we do really good work and blah, blah. You know, he's, he's just not a faith guy. So, but I got to see him when he left. And it just happened that I saw him. He doesn't know that I saw him. He took his hand and so reverently touched the door. It was a blessing, of, a treasured blessing from him that are going out and coming in would be meaningful for the common good. And what that blessing said to me is that not only was he ministering to us in the blessing, but we ministered to him in the process. That we'll ask these other questions. We'll we'll bring in stories that he wouldn't know. We leave room for mystery. And there is a hunger for that in our lives. I think for us as faith advocates, We bring the divine consciously into our work, and in that very process, open up the space for people who hunger for something deeper. 
Commonweal was founded in 1924 with the idea of the common good, the common wheel in mind. And that's something we try to think about every day at the, at the office. What do you think are places where we can work for the common good in the years to come? There's tons of issues that I'm keenly aware of when it comes to the common good. The ones that we focus on most at Network is the income and wealth disparity. And the fact of the shifting of money to the top is sucking the life out of our nation and that our people are struggling mightily. And right now, those who have lost their jobs because of COVID who are not able to pay their rent or about to lose their unemployment benefit, additional unemployment benefits, as well as the eviction moratorium is about to end, and we need Congress to act. But apart from this crisis issue of the common good, the piece that I think is most critical that we address is the structural racism that is alive and well and hiding in our current laws. And what we've studied at Network, and I invite any of the listeners to go on and look at our racial wealth and income gap material, is that there are many laws passed by Congress that look neutral on their face, but in fact have embedded in them a structural racism. The Commonweal requires Black Lives Matter. No life matter unless Black Lives Matter. And we've got to be able to stand together and ensure that all the people in our nation can flourish, that their income is sufficient to be able to live in dignity and care for their families, that they have enough for, to, that they earn enough for some recreation, that they can save for retirement. I mean, it is, the economic disparity right now is horrifying and the racial racialization of that is even worse. So the common will, the common good, requires that we come together, let our hearts be broken open by this reality, and then in that process, if we really are brokenhearted, we will find each other and make change. And in making the change, working together to make change is the hope and the joy and the fullness of our faith. Sister Simone, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, an honor to do. Thanks for inviting me. Sister Simone Campbell's book is Hunger for Hope, Prophetic Communities, Contemplation, and the Common Good, out now from Orbis Press. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.